now uh, to Isaiah chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace and your guidance as we look into a text and into a reality that affects literally every person in this room. All of us at one time or another have been guilty of behaving one way on the outside while our hearts have been somewhere else. And so, Father, we recognize that as we open up Your Word, just the fact that You've revealed Yourself at all is a tremendous evidence of Your grace. And so this morning, as we look further into who You are, and what you intend to do in the earth. I pray that you would show us yourself in the person of your Son, because we know that knowing you will transform us and make us what you created us to be. So, Father, please do what you have promised to do by the power of your Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Throughout the history of Christ Church, few events have carried nearly as much significance as a meeting convened a few miles southeast of the Bosporus Strait in the 4th century A.D. Eyewitnesses tell us that more than 300 pastors, along with other church leaders from across the known world, gathered in the year 325 for the First Council of Nicaea, a meeting that would not have been possible just a few decades before, during the horrible persecutions of Emperor Diocletian around the turn of the century. Most of the men who traveled to Nicaea in 325 had lived through that terrifying ordeal. Christianity had never enjoyed favored status with the Roman government, but for, the most, uh, for most of its early history, the persecution was sporadic and sort of half-hearted. Cases in which individual magistrates or governors singled out Christians uh, their, their trial often ended in execution. But the great persecution that these men had lived through was something altogether different. Diocletian's strategy was not so much to kill those who failed to offer incense to his genius, but to convert Christians back to paganism. So instead of being killed outright, these believers were tortured and then asked to recant their commitment to Jesus. Those who remained faithful in the face of such torture came to be called confessors. Those whose faith had been tried in the fires of persecution and the fires of torture and found to be thoroughly genuine. Well, such was the case for so many convened in Nicaea that year. These confessors bore the scars of their patient endurance, their faces disfigured, their backs bent, their muscles tense from the pain. 
These men were serious about their faith. They had followed Christ even in suffering and had led their congregations faithfully down through the decades. Now I bring that up in order to ask this question. What would such a group, proven faithful through torture, allowed to gather together openly for the first time in many lifetimes, what would they choose to talk about? They traveled hundreds of miles across the, from across the empire. What, what would they choose to discuss? Would they immediately begin to strategize about building institutions like a missions agency or a seminary? No. Would they collect data on how many individuals were being baptized and try to glean insights from the fastest growing congregations and, and, and try to share those insights with one another? No. Would they discuss their political environment and collaborate on how they might press their advantage in the public sphere? No. No, what these men, scarred by persecution, exhausted by travel, bent with age, would choose to discuss is something altogether more important than any of those things. They chose to spend their time considering the nature of the Son of God. Nearly the entire council was preoccupied with the nature of the Lagos, the second person of the Trinity. To them, far more important than the status of Christianity in the empire, far more important than the growth of Christianity around the world, was the knowledge of God. For all they had been through, they wanted to know God better and make Him known. Now contrast the attitude of these men with that of the inhabitants of Jerusalem that we just read about. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. The word translated know there in verse 3 carries with it an emphasis on deep relational, personal knowledge. It's a word used euphemistically by Moses to describe the intimacy between Adam and Eve. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. It's more than just knowledge of facts, it's the knowledge of a person to whom one relates personally. What was Israel's problem? What, what, what was wrong with the city of Jerusalem? They didn't know God. They, they didn't have a real personal relationship with their Creator. Is it possible that the same could be said of us? Of any of us? Recent studies have, uh, of the lifestyles and ways of thinking of American evangelicals reveal that the lack of true, true relational knowledge of God was not unique to the ancient inhabitants of Jerusalem. People who claim to know God, but have no actual relationship with Him whatsoever, are as common in today's America as they would have been in Isaiah's Jerusalem. So often we forget with the inhabitants of Jerusalem one of Scripture's central truths, that one of the most important, one of the most practical things, pursuits that any of us can undertake, is to know God. This was the testimony of the sage in Proverbs chapter 9, where we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by such wisdom your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. This was the lesson learned by Job in his suffering, who he was able to face the loss of everything he had, and even his own health, when he realized, he he says, I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job had turned the corner when he went from knowing about God to actually knowing God himself. This was the claim made by the Apostle John, who describes a time in 1 John 1.31 when we will be thoroughly changed, we will be like him, John says. And why? Because we will see him as he is. 
The knowledge of the Son of God will have a transforming effect on our very be, uh, being. Even the Lord Jesus Himself said as much in His prayer in John 17. He says, This is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. What could be more practical than eternal life? What, what could be more relevant to any person sitting in this room today than the state of your soul for all of eternity? And we learn from the Lord Jesus that this all hinges on one thing, whether we really, truly know God. The prophecy of Isaiah, as you may have come to realize, reflects as deeply on the nature and character and personality of God as any other biblical book. Few biblical writers mine as deeply into the character and nature of God as Isaiah does. Uh, Commentator John H. Oswalt reflects, Perhaps in no other biblical book are the wonder and grandeur of God so ably displayed. Isaiah seems to be saying that if humanity could ever glimpse the true picture of God's greatness and His glory, our problem would be on its way to being solved. Now, Now that's a bold claim. Know God and your deepest problems will be solved. Do you believe that? That the greater the knowledge of God, the, the deeper your relationship with Him, the greater your victory will be over whatever it is that's assailing you today, whatever the deepest problems that you're facing? I'm convinced that for all its boldness, this claim is true and it's binding. The more longing we have to know God, the better we'll be able to conform to the purpose for which we were created and the greater our experience of true and lasting joy. Here in Isaiah 1, we find that a dearth of knowledge of, of the knowledge of God has led God's people into a dangerous spiritual sickness. Uh, so notice with me, first of all, the presenting symptoms. Uh, let's read, beginning in verse 4. Isaiah says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence... Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Here in the opening verses of Isaiah 1, God calls upon heaven and earth to judge between Himself and the people of Israel, against whom He brings a scathing indictment. Notice that God, in this case, He's not testifying against all the creatures living on the face of the earth, but against His special people. He's testifying against the nation of Israel, the redeemed people of God who had been graciously bought out of the slavery to sin and rescued through judgment from the clutches of bondage. Look how he describes their, their privileged position. Uh, in verse 2, they're called children. My people, in verse 3. These are people who have enjoyed God's special, undeserved favor. Unconditional. But instead of responding to their privileged position with gratitude and obedience, the, we're told that they rebelled against the very God that nurtured them for centuries. 
Uh, These children, instead of behaving like sons and daughters of God Almighty, had, according to verse 4, become the offspring of evildoers. And it's because of that rebellion that we see the pathetic state of affairs of the people of God. Uh, Isaiah paints a picture of the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding kingdom of Judah. Uh, This nation is like a a, a man lying on a sickbed, covered with sores, wrapped in putrid bandages from head to toe. His caregivers have abandoned him. He's left to waste away. Without going into too much detail, if you understand the political climate of the ancient Near East during the the ministry of Isaiah, you'll see that this analogy fits perfectly with the situation. Uh, Throughout Isaiah's entire ministry, Judah sort of teeters on the brink of collapse. The times in which Jerusalem had flourished were in the distant past at this point in their history. Their only relevance seemed to be that they exist at, at the crossroads between the region's powerful empires. You've got Egypt to the south, uh, Assyria is to the north, Babylon is far to the east. And not to mention the constant threat of smaller kingdoms like Moab and Philistia and Syria and Ephraim. Each of these great powers is poised to swoop in and, and gobble up Judah for good. It's no wonder that Isaiah could describe them as a a little shed in the midst of a garden. Can you picture that in your mind's eye? Completely unprotected and exposed to its enemies from every angle. In summary, according to verse 9, the people of God living in Jerusalem were in basically the same position as ancient Sodom and Gomorrah. You might recall that in the book of Genesis, Abraham appeals to God, uh, to his justice, and he asks that, that he spare the city of Sodom on behalf of just ten righteous people. We learn later that not even such ten, ten such people are in existence in the city, and so God, uh, he, he, he judges the city of Sodom, and the city is buried in burning ash. It seems that Jerusalem, in spite of its tremendous legacy, is in just such a state. Uh, saved, protected from annihilation by just a tiny remnant of the righteous. Now, before we go any further, I I just want to offer a point of clarification. Maybe this description of the city of Jerusalem sounds a little bit like your life right now. Lacking in strength, isolated, vulnerable to attack, used up, desolate, I should make very clear that if you're experiencing those types of circumstances, it doesn't necessarily mean that that you're experiencing those things because you've done something wrong. You might be experiencing these types of circumstances even though you haven't rebelled, even though you haven't dealt corruptly, you haven't despised the Lord. Now, I know that not only because experience tells us that sometimes the righteous suffer, sometimes... But, but Scripture itself makes clear that this is the case. Sometimes God allows trying circumstances because He desires to strengthen our faith. Uh, we learn that from 1 Peter chapter 1. Sometimes God allows trials and difficulties into our life because He wants to teach us how to comfort others. We learn that from 2 Corinthians 1. But it may be that you're experiencing a similar set of circumstances and, and the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to you how this situation is tied directly in some way in in which you're living in rebellion, some way in which you're despising the Holy One of Israel. 
Now, in order to know whether that's the case, we have to dig a little bit deeper. At this point, all we've really seen are the presenting symptoms. What we need to do do is, is learn the real root cause behind the situation that we're experiencing. And, of course, the same was true for the inhabitants of Jerusalem in Isaiah's day. So notice with me not only the presenting symptoms, but a probing diagnosis. Now, before we read verse 10, I just want, want you to take a moment to imagine something with me. Imagine reading about those presenting symptoms in verses 2 through 9, and then taking a time machine back to Jerusalem in Isaiah's day. 735 B.C., just a few years into Isaiah's ministry. You've just learned that God's people don't know their God. You've learned that they're living in rebellion against Him. So you might expect, upon getting into that time machine, traveling back in time, and then walking out onto the Temple Mount, you might expect to see that that the entire Temple complex is in disrepair and neglect. You'd expect to find weeds growing up out of the cracks in the pavement, the courts surrounded by seedy saloons and brothels. You'd expect something like an inner city church that's been boarded up and and trash is kind of blowing across the doorstep in some of the blighted neighborhoods of an inner city. That's what you might expect. But that's actually not what you would have witnessed. What you would have seen is, is gleaming limestone. Priests dressed in clean linen. Their polished miters flashing in the sunlight. You would see crowds of praying supplicants all over the place. uh, Spotless sacrificial animals in herds everywhere. You would see what must have looked like a thriving spiritual culture in, in the city of Jerusalem in the kingdom of Judah. We learn that from verses 10 and following, but we also learn that God wasn't all that impressed with it. So let's begin reading there in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations... I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. See, God's people had dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. They were offering animals and incense. They were lifting up their hands in prayer. They were gathering for worship. They were keeping the Sabbath. They were celebrating the feast. But God hated it. He despised it. They were faithfully, daily performing the obligations of religious ritual, and yet we're told that they were still just inches away from destruction and judgment. Now, why is that? Don't miss this. Because this is where we really start to see the true character of God. Why were the people of God experiencing the judgment of God when when all the while they were performing the rituals that God himself had asked them to perform? Well, there are really only a few options here. Were the people of God in danger because God was not as powerful as the gods of the surrounding nations? 
That's what the surrounding nations would have asked them to believe. That's even what some well-meaning preachers try to teach, even now. But it's clearly not the case. The God of Israel had already demonstrated his superiority over the gods of the surrounding nations. He's the creator of the universe. All things on earth or in heaven have been made by him, including the principalities and powers in the spiritual realm. And as such, all things are subjected to him. In addition to that, we can see from the context that there is, there's more going on. God's not helpless to assist his people. The suffering they experience is shown in this chapter to come from God himself. The issue is not his inability to protect them. He's, in fact, the one who's bringing the judgment upon them. So what is it then? Well, maybe God is unfaithful to his people and he's changed his mind. After all, we learn from the book of Deuteronomy that God did not choose Israel because of anything inherently special that he saw in them that distinguished them from the other nations. He only chose them because of his sovereign mercy and love. So maybe God has simply changed his mind. He doesn't like them anymore. But long before, God had used an unrighteous and greedy prophet named Balaam to dispel that notion when he told Israel's enemy, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind. God is unchanging. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To say that God has abandoned his people would be to say that God himself changed, and that's the same as saying he's not God. That which is perfect cannot change unless it somehow loses that quality of perfection. But God's not like that. He's perfect in all his ways, and therefore he cannot change. He doesn't grow tired or annoyed with his people or lose interest in their well-being. He is the same. The earth might grow old and decay. We humans grow old and decay, but God does not. He doesn't change. He keeps His promises to His people. Okay, well, if it's not that, if it's not that God is unable to save them, or that God uh, was unfaithful to His children, maybe God just doesn't care about all these sacrifices and rituals to begin with. Maybe all that stuff is empty and meaningless and he doesn't care about it at all. But wait a second. 41 times in the Old Testament, the biblical writers describe the smoke coming up off of the altar as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's unmistakable that God loved the ceremony and symbol of Old Testament worship in Isaiah's day just as much as he loves the ceremony and symbol of New Testament worship in our day when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and Baptism. God himself described to Moses in detail exactly how he wanted the worship of his people to be conducted. He told Moses exactly how he wanted him to construct the tabernacle during the sojourn in the wilderness. And we're told in the book of Exodus that the people followed those instructions to the T. God himself graced it with his glorious presence. Uh, When the temple was built, he did the same thing. By the way, when someone tried to improve on those symbols and ceremonies that God had put into place, he destroys them. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, you might remember, two of Aaron's sons found that out the hard way. They brought strange fire into the tabernacle, a new and improved version of the incense that God had commanded them to use, and he strikes them with a bolt of lightning. Uh, Another man by the name of Uzzah disrespects the Ark of the Covenant while God's people attempt to return the Ark from from a foreign land. Uh, in In an attempt to keep it from falling, he reaches out his hand and he attempts to steady the Ark and immediately... God takes them. So the issue is not that God doesn't care about ceremony or symbol. 
It's not that he doesn't care about religious rituals. He absolutely does because these rituals reveal who he is. You mess with the ritual, you've messed with the revelation. And when you mess with the revelation, you're saying something that's altogether false about God himself. So it's not that God is weak or unfaithful. It's not as though he doesn't care about rituals. So why is it that God hates their sacrifices? Why does he hate their feasts? It's simple. Because the inhabitants of Jerusalem were religious hypocrites. They were keeping all the rules, but their hearts were not in it. They they were worshiping God on the outside, but bowing to idols in their hearts. Sacrificing to the Lord at the temple, but paying homage to injustice in the marketplace. You see, the movers and shakers in Jerusalem were prime examples of fake spirituality. They lived in an evil way and labored to cultivate evil structures in the socioeconomic fabric of the city. No qualms about violence. No conscience toward the widows and orphans languishing in the streets. But then they turned around and they used their ill-gotten wealth to fuel an elaborate religious machine designed to placate a deity that they, they assumed could easily be fooled. They had tricked themselves into thinking that they could keep their religious life in one compartment and the, and the complete rest of their life in a completely different compartment. All because at the end of the day, they didn't know God. Have you ever met anyone like that? Someone who transforms into a different person around 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday? Someone who uses their hands all week to commit evil and then raises them up in prayer at church. Someone whose name is always on the short list to teach Sunday school or sing in the choir, but beats his kids and berates his wife. Someone who posts little spiritual snippets on Instagram for all the world to see, but has no problem slandering her neighbor. Someone who's always checking which Bible version you're using or what hymns you're singing, but won't give so much as a dime to support his own widowed mother. We've all seen it. Here's the thing. God sees it. He doesn't like it. You might be able to fool your grandmother and your mother and your buddies and even yourself, but you cannot fool God. God hates religious hypocrisy. In God's mind, it is worse than outright rebellion for two reasons. First of all, religious hypocrites know better. They've already received the revelation. They've been graced with the message of the gospel, and they despise it while there are so many others who have never heard. Second of all, it pollutes the soul-saving message of grace. Religious hypocrisy preaches that all God cares about is what he sees in the church pew or the offering plate, not what he sees in the heart, and as such, it is a slander and a stain on the name of God. Here's your problem. If you are one of these religious hypocrites, you don't know God. To you, God is impressionable, gullible, stupid, preoccupied with things that don't actually matter. Your God is like a pet. He can be placated with a little treat here and there, a little attention from time to time. But the real God, the God who actually exists, is not like that at all. God is the sovereign creator of the ends of the earth. All people and all things are from Him and through Him and for Him. As Isaiah says here in verse 9, He is the Lord of hosts. 
Meaning, He commands the countless armies of heaven and directs the movements of the sovereign nations of the earth. To Him, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're like, they're like nothing. He created them, He set them up, and He can tear them down in a moment. In His great power, He sees not only the activities that you engage in, but He also sees the contents of your heart. He knows what you're thinking. He told Samuel that centuries before. God looks on the heart. He's not fooled by the ways that you shake hands and smile and say amen because He knows what you're actually thinking. Not only that, but the uniform testimony of Scripture is that God is just and good. He always does what's right. That's His very nature. It was His justice and goodness that spared Lot and his family from Sodom. It was His justice and goodness that spared God's people from Pharaoh's bondage. It was His justice and His goodness that destroyed all the earth in a flood. It is His justice and His goodness that pronounces judgment on God's people here in Isaiah 1. As we learn in Deuteronomy 32.4, He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. You know what is right, but God embodies what is right. His very nature is such that He can't countenance wickedness, and the day is coming when all the religious hypocrites will stand before the Lord complaining, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in Your name? Didn't You see us at church? Didn't You catch how much money we put in the plate? Didn't You see me close my eyes meaningfully when we were singing? Didn't you see me pray over my food when I was sitting in the break room? Didn't you see the Christian t-shirt that I was wearing? The the bracelet with the Bible verse on it? How about my Philippians 4.13 tattoo? That stuff took courage. And God's going to say, I don't know you. Friend, the only way that any of that stuff is going to matter is is if it's the overflow of a heart that's truly humble before the Lord. And I can tell you that if the sum total of your faith can be described in terms of feel-good quotes, religious tattoos, tithes and offerings, other outwardly religious activities that leave you as Lord over all the other areas of your life, then you do not know the Lord. Now, listen. That finger that in your mind is pointing at your dad or your brother or your cousin, or your work associate, the one accusing them of religious hypocrisy, be careful. Uh, You might want to point it right back at yourself for just a second. In our day, hypocrisy is almost the cardinal sin, isn't it? Uh, It's a betrayal of one's true self. It's a lack of authenticity. Uh, Maybe you've even said, I love Jesus, but I just can't stand Christians. Or you've heard people say that, something to that effect. Maybe you've thrown up your hands in disgust over how many hypocrites you've met in churches. Now, I know you're not like that. You're not like the hypocritical Pharisees, right? You would forgive any sin. Adultery? Forgiven. Drug addiction? I'd forgive that. Murder? Ooh. Okay, are you sorry? All right, forgiven. All the big sins. I'm not like the Pharisees. I would forgive them all. But the one sin that you can't stand is hypocrisy. 
fake people who act all high and mighty. Nothing worse than someone who walks around thinking she's better than everybody else, right? Friend, if you think that way uncritically, you still don't know God, do you? See, we've talked about the presenting symptoms and dove deep into a probing diagnosis, but we're really not finished with this passage until we've seen the prescribed remedy. God is so much kinder than we are. He sees more of our sin than anyone else ever could. It's more of an offense against Him than it is against anybody else. Yet He is so much quicker to forgive than we are. Even the sin that makes us sick, even the sin of hypocrisy, He stands ready to forgive. And look with me at verse 18. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, that is, though your hands are covered with blood, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. God hates hypocrisy even more than you do. That much is true. But it's not the whole truth. Not only does God hate it, but He has made a way for religious hypocrites to be forgiven from it. God is so much more righteous than we are, and God is so much more merciful than we are. He actually offers forgiveness to hypocrites. Now, how does He do that? Does He simply overlook our sin? No. As we've already seen, that would be unjust. God is pure. God, uh, by nature, is just. He always tells the truth about our sin. He won't overlook it. Uh, We see just a glimpse of the all-wise Sovereign plan of God in verse 27 of this chapter where we're told that Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. In other words, God's offer of repentance comes to us hypocrites by means of an act of great righteousness. God in His sovereign wisdom in the councils of the Trinity long before the worlds were formed set a plan in motion to redeem a people for Himself. God the Son came into the world. He became a man and He partook of all the weaknesses of the flesh that we deal with ourselves. But unlike us, He never sinned. He was tested in every way, but He never broke. He never gave in to those temptations. He satisfied the demands of God's law because He acted out of a heart that was perfect before the Father. He was the only one who was never guilty of hypocrisy, unlike you and me. And in accordance with the plan that God had made long before, He offered Himself as a spotless sacrifice. Taking God's punishment for sin in His own body, being plunged underneath the wrath of God, drinking all of God's judgment to the last drop, And when He took it all completely, having experienced the infinite wrath of God in His infinite person, and dying in the place of sinners, He rose again from the dead. So that all those who belong to Him might be saved from the power of death and judgment as well. Why did He do this? This was so that God might be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. Who clothes them with righteousness because they have no righteousness of their own. And God does this graciously for murderers, for liars, for uh, thieves, and even hypocrites if we repent. This is what happened in the life of a famous uh, Baptist preacher named Elias Keach. Most of my church history illustrations are from Baptist history. And this one actually ties into where I grew up. 
Uh, Elias was the son of a famous Baptist preacher, Benjamin Keach, who ministered in London. As a young man, Elias Keach was nothing like his father. He was an impious, wild rascal. He liked to masquerade as a pastor in order to make fun of serious Christians. Well, finally, in order to escape his father's influence, he crossed the Atlantic and uh, he landed in the new colony of Penn's Woods in 1686. Well, because they recognized the name of his well-known father, some faithful Welsh Baptists uh, living just outside Philadelphia invited him to come and preach, unaware of the fact that he was only planning to do so for sport and to laugh at them later on. Young Keach began to hold forth like he had heard his father do many times, but then in mid-sermon, all of a sudden he stopped and he fell to the ground weeping. The congregation rushed to his aid, assuming he had fallen ill. But what had actually happened was that Keach had been converted under the sound of his own preaching. He'd been smitten by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. So he explained to his new friends he'd been the worst kind of hypocrite. And they welcomed him immediately into the family of God in Christ. Keach was baptized by an old preacher in Bucks County, and the change in his life became evident from the start. He was so changed by the power of the Spirit working through the preaching of the gospel that he quickly became the leader of the small group of believers. They constituted a church just two years later in 1688, a church that still meets today as the oldest Baptist congregation in Pennsylvania. And friends, that is how our God works. He hates hypocrisy, but he sent his son to die so that hypocrites might repent and be redeemed. Maybe you've been living this way for years. I hope today is the day that God exposes your hypocrisy and you abandon it in the power of the Spirit. You're not fooling God. Don't fool yourself. Repent. Humble yourself before the God who offers forgiveness to hypocrites today. Let's pray. Father, this is one of those passages that I certainly can't preach without feeling sort of like a hypocrite. The truth is that none of us can stand before you on his own merits. None of us can stand before you with his own righteousness, Lord. It's not of good that I have done It's nothing but the blood of your Son, Jesus, that cleanses us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to know you, not only as the God who hates hypocrites, but as the God who offers forgiveness to hypocrites through Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would use that life-changing reality to change us, to be people who really serve you in transparency, and in humility. Lord, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.